in this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter. And joining me this week, we have got... Historian John Lawrence from the University of Exeter. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast um, and talking to us. Um, so the main reason we've got you on is because um, you work on the journal Renewal, a journal for social democracy. Um, and we, Renewal and Social Review, have a bit of a partnership. And um, listeners, you may remember, remember a previous episode with um, Florence Sutcliffe Braithwaite talking about um, a piece uh, a piece of hers in the Renewal Journal about Rishi Sunak and Tory rhetoric and ideology and how things haven't really changed, um, even though they would like you to think otherwise. Um, and we're going to be doing that again um, with um, John's piece about vernacular social democracy. Um, so for listeners um, who haven't read the piece, but it will be up on our website, so you can go read it um, in full. Uh, would you like, would you just be able to give a sort of like overview of what your, your argument is? What, what's the piece about? Yeah, so really it comes from, I wrote a book last year called Me, 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 which is an attempt to explore over the last 70 years how people have reconciled um, individualism and the pull towards community in their own lives. But the thing about that is it doesn't have a hell of a lot to say about party politics because it's very much written from the point of view of the respondents to these social science interviews, 10 different studies, about more than a thousand people. And uh, it seemed like a good time to draw out some of the political implications of it. And the central ones, I suppose, that, that struck me uh, as someone on the left is that there was some quite good news in there for the Labour Party if it was willing to listen to what I call vernacular politics, listen acutely. Um, and, you know, the, the truth is there's within the vernacular, within everyday speech, you can mm -hmm. find whatever party politics you want. It's my job as someone of the left to show where the grains are that run in our direction and suggest that that's what we need to, to focus on. And I could pull out, I hope in the conversation, we'll pull out all of the different aspects of mm. that. But the main one is simply that the social dem democracy, which is my word for what Labour did in 1945, mm. not a word you find in the vernacular, but that social democracy put down incredibly deep roots and those roots are available to Labour politics, not just in the NHS, but across many, many different mm. aspects of society as a fundamental belief in fairness, in social minima, in, in the state's responsibility to make it possible for people to live decent lives where they can then pursue their own personal and family goals. And mm. that's where individualism and collectivism come together that's that's what I'm arguing in the piece and as I say you could find a populist radical right vernacular if you want it from the same people probably but that isn't what we want to do um, and we have to, I mean my, my fundamental belief is there's not much point in democratic politics trying to change people you need to understand the facets of their worldview and their lives which you can work with you're not actually going to change the vernacular in less than generations. Thatcher didn't manage it really, and nobody else is going to. Mm. And and so with, with that idea of the the vernacular, I think um, sort of the 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 most immediate question to to, to come in response to that is that if we have this kind of like deeply deep entrenchment of social democracy within our sort of like um, general culture and our our um, of vernacular with regards to those ideas of like community um, and, and the nation. Um, 
why is it that the Conservative Party always wins general elections, or almost always wins general elections? Um, well, as I say, they're only one of the resources that's there. They're not mm. by any means the only one. And I think that actually the Labour Party has always been a party steeped in the Enlightenment and therefore mm. does believe that the main project is to change people and to educate and reform the public. And all I'm saying, I mean, that's not impossible, but you're setting yourself an enormous mountain mm. when you start out to say, well, I know you think you believe these things, but really, honestly, this is how it should be. That's not mm. what people, you know, most people aren't interested in politics, so they're not actually going to be listening to you anyway. Mm. Um, you need to be listening to them. And that is a central message of mm. what I'm saying. But actually, what I'm also saying is that doesn't just mean focus groups and opinion polling, because a lot of what people will say will be pretty thin. Um, a, lot of, a lot of things are generated out of those situations mm. that are very ephemeral beliefs. And what I try to do is trace continuity over as I say, over 70 years of, of ideas that I think are, give a little bit more hope that there's something robust there mm. to, to work with. Mm. Yeah, so, so that's, that's essentially what you were doing in your book, right? It's a, it's a, it's yeah. a sort of tracking a, a data set, as it were, of, of how, and, and like specifically what, what kind of were those ideas which kept reoccurring? Was it those sort of like the, the attraction to the idea of community, the attract and attraction to the idea that the state should help. Um, well, no, I mean the the the, the key the key hook of the book really mm. is to say that on the one hand we haven't all become individualist. We already mm. were in the 1940s and frankly mm. in the 19th century. Britain is an individualist society mm. because of things that happened deep in its history in the Reformation and also in the way that industrialization and capitalism took root early the market took root early. So those are not new things and mm. they, they can take new forms, but it's been there alongside mm. powerful ideas about social responsibility, connection to others. Mm. And they took new forms in the 20th century that I'm calling social democracy. The Labour mm. Party worked with things that were there in the culture and built things. So the one thing you can do in politics is you can actually legislation Mm. behavior what you create can change behavior because people have to respond to the stimuli and the nhs is a fact on an enormous scale that has completely transformed the politics of health mm. so that everybody is clamoring to, to to seem to be the real um partisans for and champions of a collectivist public health system which is fairly unusual in its form so that's what you can do with politics but it's not it's not through changing minds as such, it's through doing things that change the facts on the ground, mm. like what the Tories did with housing, which was once equally seen as a social right. Mm. Many people might still hold on to that idea, but the facts on the ground now tell them something radically different, which is it's been highly marketized. Housing is a commodity first and foremost. Um, health, much, much less so. Mm. Education, much less so that had already had large state imprint even before Labour got to form a government. Mm. Yeah, I, I just want to pick up on something. Um, well, two things. I'll get to the second thing later. But when the, the first thing you said um, about how Britain is an individualist country and, and those traditions of liberal individualism go way back, um, which is something that I'm quite interested in. I've been, um, for academic reasons, I've been rereading... Um, I've been looking over some of like Clement Attlee's statements um, from the 1940s and also reading um, 
the beverage report um into social security which which ended up creating the welfare state and um was was sort of like struck by how by atley's conception of socialism was this idea that it was government the state's job to provide the means for people to lead the good life as they saw fit essentially and and mm. beverage writing about um how he saw um this welfare state although he didn't call it a welfare state um as enabling citizens to live freely and that having autonomy over your income and um a sufficient basis of means to enable to able autonomy is also enabling freedom um mm. and i think it's 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 definitely fair to say we have a historical view that these trends of like liberalism well um like individualism rather and and um a, a heavy emphasis on freedom individual freedom individual liberty um have are obviously not contemporary ideas they're very old ideas but have taken more prevalence in britain during the thatch years and after but what you get from reading the material from the 1940s is that that isn't necessarily the case and as you say it, it from the very beginning it has those ideas have sort of been bound up in a social de democratic framework as well and even now with um I, I think a lot of contemporary social democratic thinking with regards to like devolution and um ideas of like communitarianism and sort of like localism is sort of steeped in those traditions and what as well in the idea of like well it's the state's job to provide people the means to enable them to live the life as they see fit because they're the people who know what they you know mm. know know how to define the good life best rather than a distant state um so so taking taking the sort of like long historical view from the world from the second world war to the present um do do, do you think what what's what's your sort of view of that the idea that the thatcher years were this like massive juncture which sort of like changed everything um do, do, do you in your research did you find that there's actually a lot more continuity between the ideas of the 1940s and the, the ideas of the 2020s even in spite of the conservative hegemony for almost 20 years and the rhetoric to the opposite of that i mean so that was a long question problem isn't it i mean there's always continuity and there's always change and that mm. it's, it's difficult you're trying to balance those two and and one uh I mean, I think sometimes we exaggerate the impact of Thatcherism and we misread how much was happening anyway. I mean, mm. but clearly there was a massive acceleration of the collapse of manufacturing, but its roots lay much earlier in the 50s and 60s. The same with the heavy extractive industries. These things were accelerated uh, by, the, by the policies that were being pursued, but I think, and, and they were really profound mm. in their impact on people's lives, but we can easily see everything as, 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 as Thatcher. I think there was a systematic attempt to, to shift the balance between individualism and social responsibility, collectivism. Mm. Well, I mean, that was intentional and in some areas, not least obviously the weakening of the trade unions, mm. uh, which was done partly by legislation, but actually largely by destroying manufacturing. Mm then that's a, that's a massive real impact because for, in, for a lot of the book that I'm talking about, people who are deeply interested in, in realizing that good life and personal autonomy are also pursuing a trade union strategy 
to achieve that, as famously Mike Savage argued with his picture of rugged individualism mm. in the British workplace. The idea behind that was you can be yourself because the union's strong enough to define to defend your autonomy at work and your and actually earn, you know, get you enough money that you can live a decent life in your private life away from work. And it was a very in, if you're looking at it from a sort of Marxist point of view, it was an incredibly attenuated collectivism. It was not even, it was, it, I suppose, you know, the Marxists would call it economistic, but it wasn't even that in some ways. I mean, it was embracing, the, it's exactly what I'm talking about. It was embracing all of these aspects of the culture um, that were deep-rooted historical traditions and turning them into something powerful for the collective good. Mm. So that was weakened. Um, in terms of your wider thesis, because I, I, don't, I don't want to sound like someone saying it's all the same, mm. Um, nonetheless, there are profound continuities, one of which is that our rosy view of the collectivism of the past does kind of miss out this complexity, the ways in which, if you're looking at it, not just at the trade union level, but in, in residential communities, then there was always uh, an ambivalence about the collective responsibilities. There was this powerful sense that you turn first to family and only more reluctantly to to neighbors for support mm. there was always that fear of um erosion of your private life and privacy of your home through you know the the pressures of living in a in a face-to-face -face community and those mm. those tensions were always there um so and in the same way that today we live in society i think you'd come on to questions about community and covid but mm where community is different, undoubtedly, because our lives are radically different, not least they're much more mobile and our horizons have tra been transformed by communications and, and by the car mm. uh, more than anything, which mean that people sustain community beyond their immediate street, which mm. is what effectively was the de facto world for a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people until mm. the 50s and 60s. Yeah, absolutely. Um... And, and the the other thing I wanted to pick up on from what you said earlier was about um, uh, stimuli to change behavior. Um, and one of the questions um, I wanted to ask was about whether you think there are any hard limitations to vernacular social democracy that can be either bypassed or mitigated or, or not at all. Um, obviously, we have, you know, one such stimuli is the media, the national media. We have a media system, ecosystem, which is, again, I think it's fair to say fairly hostile to um the labor party left-wing ideas um etc etc um the sort of conservative hegemony um uh, are, there, are there any what 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 limitations do you see or do you not see those two as limitations so you're, you're meaning limitations to the ability to to speak directly and to touch this yeah this yeah thing. so accepting powerful alternative stimuli yeah social democracy that labor could work with how do you bypass the impediments to reaching it is that what you mean yeah you mean yeah problems of the media i mean i mean that's been labor's problem for a long time hasn't mm. it at one level it's not as big a problem as it once was because that print media's reach is not as great as, mm. as it was in the days of kinnock say but it's still significant. I think that we sometimes forget how much um, the press follows its readers. Mm. I think if you can use all of the means of communication that were not available to Kinnock and his predecessors 
to reach more directly people uh, and to speak a language that they understand. So not using the language social democracy, mm. but speaking what I would call the vernacular aspects of, of a social democratic worldview about fairness and social justice, then some of those papers will change tack as they did in, in the days of the Blair opposition. You know, by the by 19 by 97, there wasn't much left standing as loyal to the Tory government because they'd been hollowed out. Now, okay, they rallied pretty quickly because there's a lot of big money behind them and a lot of reasons why they take the positions that they do, but they didn't want to be out of kilter with their readers completely. You can certainly see a world in which they sit on the fence with an unpopular conservative government. So you've got to make that conservative government unpopular. And that's about one of one side of that is how you appeal directly using new media to the public. And the other is actually having in the way that the Tories have been so good at all the time, but particularly in the last 10, 20 years, at eroding the credibility of their opposition with a simple story. I mean, whatever you thought about Cummings, he was very good at keeping stories simple and in uh, in, a, in a common sense language and mm. hammering those simple messages. Mm. And that's what Labour has to do. It has to have a narrative, a clear story about particularly what we've been going through and the gross corruption that's been part of it and incompetence that's been part of it. And it has to not be diverted once it has that powerful story to, mm. to pursuing other mo you know, issues of the moment. It's got to tie everything back to a single narrative. Mm. Definitely. Um, and, and that that sort of easily, easily brings brings me on to COVID. Um, I think in, in many ways, the present social and political situation regarding COVID, but also regarding the decade of austerity that we've had um, and the previous economic cr crash and now another economic crash, um, it's, it's ripe for labour in a way, or you'd think it would be ripe for labour. And, um, you know, there are many, I think there are many similarities between the situation now of like, um, uh, you know, the night is darkest just before the dawn kind of thing. Um, similarities between the situation now and the situation back in the 1930s and 40s, which ultimately um, produced the this social, social democratic um, consensus, social democratic politics. Um, of course, there are the structural impediments to that. We're not having a general election for another four years. Um, we don't know what's going to happen between now and 2024, we could have another pandemic. Um, hopefully not. Um, but um, has ha, ha, has your mind been changed at all, or have you been rethinking anything regarding the book um, as a result of the COVID crisis? Um, has has anything that we've mm -hmm. seen over this year sort of like changed your mind, um, or has it sort of consolidated what the arguments that um the arguments and ideas you were already thinking about with regards to uh community and vernacular social democracy right i mean that's a difficult question i do also i don't like to, i wish i believed what you said about you know the difficult times leading to a, a left politics i think that's not true mm. i think on the whole the opposite is true you know i mean not just the 30s after all the tories won a massive victory in 35 mm one in 40 almost certainly but you know more recently major wins in 92 precisely because in some ways things look grim and mm. it, by 97 things don't look grim and Labour wins the landslide mm. 
So one of our problems is that there's not much historical evidence that people turn to the left in times of, of challenge. It's mm. much more politics of optimism. Mm. So given how bad COVID is, the left has got to find a language that makes the public believe that actually it's shown a way out of the trap of austerity, that, okay, these problems are real, uh, but we are going to be able to pay, up, pay them off over generations like a world war and keep the, keep the mood up. Because if it goes for the, 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 you know, the doom and gloom analysis, then frankly, I think they won't win. Um, they've got to stoke, they've got to focus on hope and incompetence of the government. Mm. But anyway, that's by the by. In terms of, I mean, one of the things, I, I have a lot more hair than I used to. I'm not out very much in the COVID crisis, given mm. my age and some health conditions. So I don't have that feel. I live in, in rural Devon, and mm. I could talk about how community works under COVID in rural Devon, but <laughs> I don't actually naively think that tells me very much about mm. the country. Um, and beyond that, I'm just reading, you know, the press and mm. following the media as everybody else is. So I, I guess it's a bit like it's a bit like everything that I'm saying in both the book and that that piece for renewal, which is there are possibilities for everybody in what's mm. happening at the moment. the The main premise of the renewal piece was it is important to to hold on to the fact that in a crisis, what you see is a very right wing populist government turning to a set of knee jerk social democratic answers. Mm which have been learned in the Second World War and seem to be ready. And, and the argument is it does that because, frankly, that's what's expected of it by the public. Mm. But the crisis isn't going to run till 2024, I don't think. I mean, the effects of it are going to run until I'm not here anymore. But the actual crisis probably won't. So that the longer term implications of that, I think it's probably less clear. I mean, it's mm. going to be about pointing up the hypocrisy of things that were done and then you know in the name of fairness in the name of the responsibilities of the state in the name of social justice that are then being unpicked very quickly mm. uh, i mean it was quite interesting wasn't it I've, I've only just caught the news but that they're they're exempting those on the lowest earnings from the public sector pay freeze and they're mm. not willing to say that it's more than one year so they are very very nervous that they know they can't rerun the politics of 2010 and win yep. in 2024 for all sorts of reasons, partly cephalogical, of where they put their base this time round. Mm. Uh, that is encouraging. It means that they, I mean, okay, it's not encouraging in that they're being intelligent about what they can and can't do, mm. but they are in a tight bind and they will, they won't always be able to, to, to finesse things in that careful mm. way. Um, yeah, I don't know if I could say much more than yeah. that, as I say, for a man with lockdown hair, I know so much about it. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I think I think what you were saying at, at, at the beginning about um, uh, may, maybe maybe people don't necessarily turn to the left in times of crisis. I, I think I think and, and that they need to speak a language of optimism instead. I think I think that is that is sort of what I meant in that in the in these very dark times it's easier to it is easier to construct an image of optimism for the future because you were saying like, okay things are really bad now but if you trust us we can get us to a better place like we you know things are bad you can look you look you can look around you can see that this is not an ideal situation you can't leave your house this is not good um and we're having a, a massive recession um and I, I guess maybe in a way it, it takes those like really low dark moments um 
in order to ultimately produce positive outcomes. I mean, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned um, major winning in 1992, but at the same time, the sort of like rolling crises of the major years arguably also helped produce Tony Blair's landslide victory. Um, and the but they were political crises, not economic. Mm, but, I mean, but the incompetences, really. Yeah, but but also the the sort of um, uh, like Black Wednesday, for example. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and, arguably that was an economic triumph. Mm. <laughs> I mean, in the sense that they wouldn't have had that long period of recovery had they not broken with the ERM. It was a political okay, disaster. Yeah, I see what you mean. More than anything, and it certainly damaged them enormously because it mm. appeared to be damaging their claim to economic competency. Mm. But actually, people didn't suffer from it they the reverse it was mm. the beginning of a long boom and it wasn't unrelated mm. because they were following a you know a strategy for a deflationary strategy that was causing a lot of pain mm. is that sim- is that similar to how um uh late labor victories were produced previously in the 20th century would, would you argue they were produced more by sort of political crises um leading to Hatley's government and wilson's government and um the very first Labour government um, way prior to that under McDonald, or, or is that is it is it too is it too neat to try and say? Yeah, that no. The same I mean, every time? I mean, the glib answer would be that for a long, long period, the Tory Party was the governing class, mm. and therefore they needed a political crisis of mm. the governing class. A sense. Um, I mean, to be fair, McDonald in twenty nine wins without that, but he doesn't win you know, majority, he doesn't even win the most votes, but mm. he forms a government with, with no more than a sense that this is a, you know, a boring government, um, but there's not a real critique of incompetence mm. on the same scale that you have uh, possible for Wilson in 64. Um, I mean, it, I think it is important to make that, that critique, but obviously that is one of the things where we've moved on. I mean, mm. I don't think there is the same sense despite the fact that Boris went to Eton, that uh, there is a, an unproblematic governing class that the insurgents have to discredit. They've done mm. more than enough to discredit themselves since Suez, really. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and um, sort of staying staying in the, in the framework of Labour, um, how successful do you think, or unsuccessful do you think um, Jeremy Corbyn was in tapping into vernacular social democracy as an as an idea um because obviously we have the sort of peak of 2017 and the ultimate complete crash of 2019 um mm. what, what what's what's your sort of assessment of i don't think corbyn was very interested in in what i'm talking about really mm. i mean i think that the, because i think he he is very he is the epitome of the enlightenment evangelical politician so what mm. You know, it's about, and, and actually that was his appeal to anybody. I mean, it was definitely his appeal to a lot of my friends that mm. he said exactly what he believed and he believed things strongly. Mm. And I mean, he wasn't really interested in what the public believed and what his natural supporters believed. And ultimately he, he, he destroyed the only currency he had on the Brexit issue because people mm. knew what he really believed and yet he didn't pursue well, anything really, but certainly yeah. not what he believed. So that was his his own. That was his USP, was being a true um, politician of 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 belief and not a pragmatic compromise. Mm. Um, but no, I don't think he was remotely interested in what I'm describing. I mean, it's bedrock 
are these ideas, um, I, I talk about it in the paper, don't I, of family, place, and nation. Mm. Those were not central ideas in any way to Corbyn's rhetoric. Mm. And it, in, in terms of who he spoke for, he spoke for much more of the metropolitan left. And not he didn't really think, I mean, the, the whole piece is about how Labour has to find a way to bridge between the progressive sections of the middle class the metropolitan mm. liberal educated middle classes and which is got which it's got so much more support from now it used that used to be a little rump mm. that was helpful <laughs> because it never had major you know sufficient support from working class people in britain mm. to form a government on its own it needed them and then it needed what i called in uh, a different a different essay the left curious parts of the working class and the lower middle class who were interested in uh, reform politics who saw themselves as progressively minded which is by, by far means you know it, it is probably the majority but it's it's a slim majority mm. in working class and lower middle class britain and uh, labor's always been successful when it brought those two together and strategically thought about building a coalition across social classes and in a way belief systems and mm. i don't think corbyn was remotely interested in that mm. that sort of coalition building people had yeah. to follow because this was the truth mm. Do you, do you think they sort of indirectly played a role in 2017, even if Corbyn himself wasn't interested? Um, like, do you, do, do you think do you think there was a, a perception that those things were important or is 2017 something of an aberration? I mean, I think in many ways, 2017 is a bit of an aberration. It's incredibly weird. Um, but do, do, do you think vernacular social democracy indirectly played a role in the 2017 results. It was a very odd election, wasn't it? I don't, yeah. I don't think it did. No, I mean, I think that was a rerun of the referendum in lots of ways. It was, and, and the point was that the Lib Dems had discredited themselves and were a busted flush. So effectively, I mean, that's why Labour managed to lose some pretty solid working class industrial seats in 2017, because mm. it was not the full red wall nightmare scenario of 2019 but it mm. was it was polarizing around that that issue and labor yeah. got a lot of support from people who thought it was the only hope to stop brexit certainly i know a lot of people who based their vote on that and to that extent yeah it was irrelevant really and what i'm talking about was largely irrelevant mm. in 2017 it's not irrelevant thinking where we go after Brexit, but I think things took a very, you know, they, they, that was the line that was polarising politics and mm. the inability of Labour politicians to understand that they'd been phenomenally outmaneuvered on the referendum and once that had happened, then they really had to, 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 to radically rethink what they were doing because mm. to, to most of their supporters, I don't think people actually even cared that much about Brexit, but they did care about the idea that they'd vote for something that Labour was saying they couldn't have. Mm. Because that sort of liberal democratic thinking runs just as deep as the social democracy I'm talking about. And I don't think they got it, which was really weird. I remember going to a big rally in London immediately after the referendum. Mm. And every politician, and it was, a, it was a, you know, an anti-Brexit referendum, a meeting but it was about how does the left reconsolidate mm. and we had uh vince cable was there for the lib dems mm. who was there chris lewis was there for labor mm. everybody said we've got to listen to this vote we've got to take it seriously we can't keep fighting the referendum we've got to now steer things 
in the direction of a sort of, you know, Brexit we want. And like mm. everybody just forgot that mm. because they felt they had the pressure of all of the disillusioned um, anti-Brexit vote, myself included. But the mm. point in politics is that you've got to decide how to steer those sorts of completely irreconcilable groups. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with your assessment about being it being really causally related to Brexit. I mean, I think in this sort of tangential, but I, I think it, it's it's very sort of peculiar. You, you, you mentioned about how um, straight after the referendum, everyone was sort of like, well, we've got to listen to the vote. We can't rerun it. We've got to focus on what fighting for the sort of Brexit we want and how everyone just sort of forgot that. Um, and I remember very much after, immediately after 2019 and seeing the sort of total collapse of the Red Bull and, and resurgent conservative dominance in those in those areas, um, Labour internal collapse, um, thinking way back to 2016 and how that was, everyone knew that was coming or everyone knew that this that was a very distinct possibility. Everyone knew that that was maybe not inevitable and that 2017 at least made us think at the time that it didn't need to be inevitable. But, but the immediate aftermath of the referendum was, okay, if Boris Johnson becomes leader of the Conservative Party, as seems likely, and causes a general election, then this is, the ref- referendum result is going to be reproduced parliamentary. Um, in, yeah. in in parliamentary um, and we're going to see the collapse of the red wall and then in, in a in a weird way it feels like the Theresa May years were a sort of deviation mm. from that course and then things got sort of course corrected and the ultimate outcome did end up happening but sort of three years late um, yeah. Yeah, and, and and now as as you say we're back to saying okay well we can't Brexit is over we can't rerun it now we're going to um um, now we're going to focus on the kind of Brexit we want, which is now what Keir Starmer is saying. It's a very, very, it's a very just bizarre few years, isn't it? The entire, you could really yeah. count the entire May administration as a sort of aberration um, and just jump straight from 2016 to 19 and, and sort of, I don't think you'd be particularly surprised by anything that happens. But anyway, um, now stay, staying in the present and, and looking to the future, um, do, do, you think, do you think Keir Starmer's interested in tapping into vernacular social democracy? I don't think we know enough yet, do we? I mean, I think he's interested mostly in constructing the idea that he's not Jeremy Corbyn mm. with the voters and performing the role of gravitas. Mm. Um, I think it's too early to say it's an incredibly difficult task to lead sure. the Labour Party, to lead the opposition, actually. Yeah. You can't... He... You know, his great strength is he's he's a great parliamentarian. That's mostly how most of us are seeing him at the moment. Mm. Uh, I think he's having some impact there and some traction. I don't know what he believes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there is a lot of people around him who believe things that are compatible with what I'm talking about. Mm. I, I imagine that's a good indication uh, of, of where the wind will blow. Mm. And I think they are, you can already see in some of the rhetoric, they are thinking about how do they how do they tap into these these languages i'm talking about i mean families have always been there for everybody let's be yeah. frank but but place and nation have been things that the labor party has not always got right mm. and particularly it seems to me there is real scope in the politics of place um because the labor party and one thing again one of the things i talk about in the renewal essay mm. it, we often forget that its its origins were as much about the emotional aspects of politics as mm. Uh, the practical and the economic and the emotion was about giving dignity 
to people's everyday lives yeah. uh, through particularly the dignity of labor, which is why they called the damn party the Labour Party. Um, and that still matters enormously. And thinking about how a politics that gives dignity back to places that are currently, you know, decried with these these glib phrases like the left behind is is a key aspect of what the party has to do and it has to get a politics of nation that it's comfortable with and that will be challenging but that doesn't mean a knee-jerk you know um echoing of everything that the tories say Mm. that wasn't what say Attlee would do he had his own patriotism of the left and that's Mm. what they'll have to find Mm. but i don't think there's enough to to judge yet and um yeah I like I like that mentality. There's a lot of there's so many takes on how X thing that's happening now will define 2024 with regards to Kirstarmer's Labour. When in reality, I think the majority of voters will probably make up their minds in the in the months leading up to the 2024 election. So um, well, probably, but if if you know you can get something like 97, which hmm. was just a very slow car crash. And the key to that was years and years of very systematic erosion of the credibility of the government. And Mm. that's essentially what they have to do. They have to tarnish that image, Um, you know, I mean, and I think Johnson obviously is is on his side there because he can always do something to tarnish. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But it's everyone around him as well. Mm. Mm. This this sort of links quite nicely into what Lisa Nandy was talking about in her leadership campaign. Um, there was a lot of emphasis on community. There was a lot of emphasis on place. There was a lot of emphasis on yeah. those ideas. I did 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 it. I mean, she ultimately got. I can't remember how was it. Not, was it sixteen. Not my vote, but uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. So I so I was I was going to ask if if. Yeah. How that how that worked for you? Obviously, she got it got she got your vote. So get my vote, and it wasn't mainly on that. Although I'm, I did think it echoed more the way I see things than anything mm-hmm. the other candidates were saying. But it was more just it seemed to me. I mean, I remember voting for Andy Burnham as well on the mm-hmm. same basis, which was essentially Labour's problem was holding on to the working class vote, not just in the north. Mm-hmm. And Burnham and now Nandy seemed to me to be more credible figures that you could build around a sort of identity politics that Labour needs. Because let's not forget, I think I'll probably say this in the renewal piece, but you know, mm. if Labour won back every single red wall seat, it still wouldn't win. Mm. Almost certainly uh, there will be a redistribution which will make things even harder. It's got to do what Blair did, which was win the whole of the North Kent coast. You know? <laughs> um, mm. Seats that it's not even, they're not even marginals at the moment. And yet they were all Labour and not just in 97. You know, some of them stayed Labour till 2010. Mm. Most of them did. So, I mean, that's the challenge. And the same for where I'm from in, in Bristol. Labour holds the, the city seats very easily, including the very middle class Bristol West that was never Labour. Uh, but all of the suburban hinterland, which was solid, well, not solid, but pretty safely Blairite under new Labour, is solidly Tory. Mm. At the moment. And those seats have to come back as well if Labour's going to win a majority. So it's a and, and so yes, I I thought that Nandy's politics were more obviously attuned to what is needed. Uh, you know, she's in the government; she will have some influence. I didn't know whether she believed it. Anyway, you can never mm. tell, but I think so. Mm. And um, and on the, on that line of um, uh, the the just the the electoral geography of it and how difficult it is for um, how difficult it is going to be 
for Labour to win in 2024. I mean, I, I still think, I, I still think at the, at the moment, at least, it seems like Keir Starmer would have a good chance, but obviously a lot can happen in four years. Um, and that structural impediment is quite a significant structural impediment. Um, but something, something which has sort of been a more low-key story from the last few years is Labour inroads in the south of England. Um, and um, uh, the, I think you saw some hints of that in 2017, of that beginning to pay off, um, but obviously didn't really track through in 2019. Um, Keir Starmer has been said to have a sort of like appeal, like, metropolitan appeal i mean i mean i'm making very sweeping generalizations here but um but do you, do you think there's anything in the possibility that labor could make inroads into different different areas of the country which could sort of like weaken that structural impediment as it were with um with scotland gone to the snp mm. as well presuming that stays mm. the same or presuming that scotland even stays in the union between now and 2024 <laughs> um it'll probably be there in 2024 but maybe not Long yes. after that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it may, as you say, not be relevant to Labour. Mm. Um, well, I, I, in, in a sense, I, I just sort of answered that in the sense mm. that, you know, there are different Souths. There's not yeah. one Northern England. And what Labour was able to do was massively strengthen its position in university towns. So, mm. if, you know, it wins Canterbury, which it had never won or even mm. been close to because it's a university town and loses the whole of the North Kent industrial working class uh, constituencies mm. all the way from Dartford right the way down to the to the to the end of the, the northern coast southern coast was always a bit dodgy for it anyway but up there it lost all those seats it lost similar seats in Essex all around say Bristol mm. uh, so I, I don't I don't take particular solace from that I think that the I suppose what I'm saying is that the politics of the industrial north and the ex-industrial South are probably not as different. It's just we've lost sight of that because we're fixated on the idea that it's a North-South thing. Yeah. But it's about Labour's relationship with uh, working class voters, really. And mm. there are ways to rebuild that. And that's what the renewal piece is partly about. Mm. And not, I think, I mean, one of the things that Labour's going to have to be really attuned to is that clearly the Tories' answer to that is going to be to try constantly to put life into new culture wars, because what they'll have to do is prevent that alliance between the, the, the university, town, metropolitan, as you're calling it, mm. liberal vote, and working class voters. And mm. Labour's job has to be to point out what that is, to point out its desperation, and to, I wrote about this in, a, in another piece, but to, to actually have some confidence in the fact that at least its own supporters are pretty liberal, even if not all working class voters are, you know, they've never won all of the working class. They don't need to worry too much. Their own part of the working class is relatively liberal as long as they don't, but, you know, as long as they don't allow themselves to be boxed into corners on issues that the Tories can make a culture war from. They just say, well, we just, you know, we believe in individual rights and individual freedoms. And mm. then I think most of those issues can be made to be not toxic. One thing we're not talking about here, of course, is the Liberal Democrats. Because actually, That's true. one of the things that made 97 possible, I mean, not possible because it would have happened anyway, but on a scale that was so extraordinary, was mm. the Liberal Democrats winning 40-odd seats, getting up to into the 50s, mm. including all of the sorts of places in the southwest where I'm now living. Yeah. 
Um, and that isn't going to happen. So the Tories, you know, it's incredibly unlikely and Labour's not going to take those seats either. Mm. But that's one of the things that makes the Tories so difficult to defeat this time, that there's no credible centrist liberal party in areas where Labour's not even got a presence. Mm. What is it that makes you say that the Liberal Democrats aren't going to achieve that in 2024? Is it, is it the, I mean, I mean, I mean, no, we, it's not my job to predict the future. Yes. But, yes. You know, it looks like a dead cat. doesn't yeah, it? Sure, I mean, yeah. you can put life into anything, but I thought there was hope for them in 2019 mm. and they managed to demonstrate manifestly just how dead the cat was. Mm. So I don't know. I mean, I could be wrong. And it, it seems to me, just it, it, really salutary to realize how quickly you can squander political credibility yeah. um, and it's understandable when you sort of you know with hindsight we can see that what was i mean i spent a lot of time opposing liberals because i lived for a long time in cambridge and they were the mm. opposition to the labor party in cambridge yeah and they would back whatever you know they were very populist and they were very opportunist mm. and i found it you know really really frustrating and um but and, and that incremental politics of triangulating between the two main parties built something up over a long period but it was destroyed very very quickly partly because it wasn't built on anything very substantial mm. i think but i don't know whether it can be resurrected i, I think it would be incredibly difficult i mean yeah. i get no sense that there is where i live is is actually central devon and when i looked at the modeling of what should have happened in i forget which election it was now 2010, I think, then it should have been a liberal Democrat gain under the, the redistribution that had just happened. They're nowhere. You know, it's now one of the safest Tory seats in the country. I don't think they even came second. Mm. And I'd, I've never seen any sign of a liberal organisation. I've never had a leaflet. I've never seen a liberal mm. Democrat. They don't stand in the local elections. It's either Labour or the Greens, if mm. anybody stands against the Tories. So that's how completely they've just disintegrated mm. on the ground in a seat that they should be winning mm. if there's going to be, um, you know, and that would massively erode the Tory party if it happened. But I know it's not going to happen, mm. which isn't yeah. to say they won't pick the odd seat up here and there, mm. but, but it's incredible. Mm. But there were never many Liberal Democrats. I think that's one of the things we forget, you know, on the yes. ground. There were a few very, very dedicated activists, but it mm. was a tiny party. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with your assessment that it looks like a dead cat i think ed davy sort of seems to be relatively absent um although part of that is also just the the structural issues of it is very difficult being a third party fourth party leader um i i guess like one of the theoretical arguments is that it's easier to vote lib dem if the labor leader is a more or is at least perceived as a more moderate figure because um you know, you, you, when you're voting Lib Dem, you understand that you're not voting for the party to form a government on itself. So if you're, if you're thinking about, okay, well, how could this potentially impact a coalition? Um, mm. I'd rather a moderate Labour leader than like somebody hard left like Jeremy Corbyn or whatever. So I guess under Keir Starmer, you can still make, you can make that theoretical argument as like fairly plausible. And um, I think in, in my, in my constituency, I'm not going to say which, I'm not doxing myself on the social review podcast, but um, my home <laughs> constituency, um, was one of the seats where the Lib Dems did actually come quite close to making a gain. The Tory majority was cut by about 10,000 votes, um, sort of uh -huh. astonish astonishingly, um, and is now under 1,000. 
Um, so went from uh, seemed quite rock solid Tory to, to almost a Lib Dem gain. Um, but one of the home counties seats. Yes, yes, yes. Um, there weren't many where that happened. Yeah, so so it's it's relative, it was relatively unique. Um, and based on that, it definitely seems like it'd be possible to to go the full way in 2024 and take the seat in full. But um, but I guess as as you were outlining things can change and things can collapse really quickly in politics, even mm. when some things seem like certainties. Um, I, guess, I guess like... Right, but I mean, that, that, the point was that Brexit played so differently there yeah. than how it's played in the Southwest. Mm. The Lib Dems need to win back seats in the Southwest as well. Yeah. In Wales. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I guess like with regards to um, fo- focusing, focusing sort of on, on the Conservative Party, something which I'm very interested in and this is a lot of what we talked about in the the episode of the podcast with with florence about um conservative contemporary conservative rhetoric versus contemporary conservative uh, action and policy um is how and, and and you say it in your piece as well about how the the knee-jerk response of the conservative party and the british state was towards social democratic policy of something like a furlough scheme and the state massively intervening in the economy i think um it's it's almost at the, at the time it all seemed i mean obviously it was very shocking at the time but it seemed very sensible and i think it's only as time goes on we're only sort of really really getting to grips with how genuinely shocking those few months at the start of the year were um with regards to everything um and i i guess my fear is that um the Conservative Party is just going to speak the rhetoric of the, re- the of speak the speak vernacular social democracy, as it were, um, as they are sort of doing now. Yet continue to in- implement very conservative policies, implement austerity, um, but get away with it because they have such sort of like hegemony over popular discourse, um, aided by a friendly media ecosystem um and that you you can sort of just ignite these cultural wars and and claim claim that you are one thing while in actuality doing another and the people will fall for it um and or not fall for it people will believe it and then they'll just keep winning elections that that's my fear do, do you think do you think do you think there's do you yeah do you, do you think there's anything do you think there's actually anything in that do you think there is actually do you think it is actually sustainable for the Conservative Party to be doing what it is doing now of, of using this vernacular social democracy while not really implementing it in practice? I mean, we've seen with the spending review, there's a there's a public sector pay freeze, except for the NHS. Like, um, and for the low paid. So yeah. I was saying, yes, yes, of course, yes. These, they're trying to hedge these things and they're nervous. Um, mm. and, and choices, they're going to get tougher for them and they'll have to make, decisions and some of those decisions will either they'll radically alienate their core Mm. wealthy base or they'll alienate the parts of the working class vote that Labour needs to get back Mm. that would be the hope and certainly Labour has to construct the story through all of the chinks in what they're doing because actually no in politics you can't just say one thing and do the other unless Mm nobody's paying attention you know it's the job of the opposition to prevent that and to Mm. expose it and we talked before about the fact that I'm not totally pessimistic about the print media Mm. preventing any way of getting that message across Mm. I think it is possible um, 
to bypass the you know the right wing press mm. and it's not easy but that's what they'll have to do and they yeah. know that yeah so i don't know i mean i'm vaguely optimistic mm. but i always am that's <laughs> a sort of human yeah. condition isn't it yeah, so I'm yeah. optimistic yeah yeah i guess i would i would fall in the same camp i mean um i mean uh, uh, we've talked a lot about 2017 but of course 2017 was evidence that you can bypass the right wing media as you say um obviously labor didn't win but god you know again it was a weird election it got incredibly close um uh i think it's going to be a site of analysis and study for an incredibly long time as to just what really what really happened and incredibly weird to live through it um we've seen in i mean uh, we've we've seen in america as well it's possible to bypass what appears to be huge um a, a massively entrenched right-wing ecosystem um by but of course if you're a trumpian you take the opposite view which is a massively entrenched sort of you know mm coastal liberal hegemony and you bypass it with twitter yeah i and guess your only ally is is meant yeah you know, i'm joking but yeah to him he, his challenge was exactly to get past you know cbs ab you know and and, and the, the mainstream mm. television media as he saw that was his problem because mm. obviously print media is a different issue in the states it's, mm. it's weaker and much more regional mm. uh, much as he may hate the washington post and new york times they're also irrelevant <laughs> they're easy to hate Mm. Uh, every, every newspaper is irrelevant looked at at a, at a sort of broader scale so i mean i think the problems are different in the two yeah countries. The yeah absolutely are different but people in britain still take an enormous i mean i know that social media is increasingly powerful as a, powerful as a source of news but that is mm. at least available to everybody even if not everybody you know using it equally but equally in britain broadcast news is still massively important and yes with all the criticisms we have of it if you have a clear message that is easily mediated it can be got to the public mm. through the broadcast news mm. and you but you need that clarity and you need to have the instinct to focus on those points that really really will expose um the chinks between the, the rhetoric and the behavior and, yeah. and relentlessly do that and then you've got a chance because mm. most people don't buy the sun for the politics it's in there but that isn't what they bought it for yes i suppose so yeah and um just just to just to sort of finish off i was um it's just thinking I, I was wondering if um there's anything if, if there's anything in politics or sort of like um broader broader society and culture going on right now which you think is going to be important over the over the next few, over the coming decade, whether there's anything which we're maybe not paying much attention to, but you think we should be paying attention to, or if you think we're paying attention to the right things <laughs> currently with regards to um, uh, the, the kind of the kind of politics that Labour Party is pursuing yeah. with regards to, you know, something. I mean, to me, the I suppose the big issue, and I do talk about it at the very end of, mm. of me, me, me the, the big issue is that we have seen a hollowing out of public life mm. in the last 30 years and the project that the Labour Party has to be involved in is finding the ways to rebuild that I suppose it was a large part of what Nandy was talking about mm. from the bottom up through ideas about how you restore uh, assets to local communities you use state money to to to, to buy them 
you you have a sense of broadening the expectation of what the state does for people in an enabling way. So one of the things when you when you go to what I would think of as a social democratic European country, one of the things that you will find is not just it has a more generous welfare system, but it has a sort of public life infrastructure mm. in a way that we really don't have any longer and mm. public spaces that are really public spaces. One of my bugbears before I moved away from Cambridge was there were all sorts of new public spaces being created and all of them were privately owned and policed by local security and mm. It, you know, and it was just the way the world was going. And it was the cheap way for um, councils to get new developments done. But it's the antithesis of what should be happening. Mm. It should be creating a sense of... Because I say the book is about how people want to reconcile personal autonomy with a sense of connection. Our yeah. job is to make sure there are spaces in which people can informally or, or more in a more organized way connect with each mm. other and the state facilitating that rather than you know being the provider but creating the spaces in which people uh, will be coming together and enriching their own lives but actually sort of yeah I mean living a more socially connected mm. socialist <laughs> life yeah, yeah. from so the bottom up you make that happen by uh, enabling it, not by mm. doing it from above. Mm. And another episode of the Social Review podcast draws to a close. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to John for coming on and talking to me um, about the book and the article. Um, if you like the sound of it and you'd like to go check it out, then it's on the Social Review website now, uh, Vernacular Social Democracy. Um, very good article. Do go give it a read. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening again, and we've got a couple more episodes lined up over the coming days and weeks, so listen out for those. Have a good rest of your day. Bye-bye. Okay, cool. Right. Three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm, I'm your sorry, host. We just had a bit of a glitch. Oh no worries. No worries. I will. I will. I will go again. You good to go again? Uh, well, I just lost you, and I don't know why. Ooh. It says the internet's fine, so let's just do three. I got three. To, your internet connect. Your internet connection is unstable. It's telling me, so that's not what we want to hear. Oh dear. We'll we'll we'll, we'll be optimistic. Perhaps Hopefully it'll work. Yeah, but um, that's the downside of being on Dartmoor. Yeah. Okay. Three, two, one.